on this edition of Create the Village. I'm hoping we're at one of those break points where the ancient regime breaks and that we, you know, try to come up with answers that work better for society. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. Our guest in this episode of Create the Village is Edward Golding, the Executive Director of the MIT Golub Center for Finance and Policy. Ed recently co-authored research titled The Unequal Course of Black Home Ownership. Before his tenure with MIT, Ed has been the head of the Federal Housing Administration, a senior advisor in the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and an executive at the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, also known as Freddie Mac. It's no secret that real estate value ebbs and flows. For some time, I've spoken about an unfortunate trend that started many decades ago and which has had a significant impact on black wealth. And it's this. The outmigration of African-American homeowners from core cities to the suburbs has come at a cost to black families. In the wake of the white flight movement of the late 60s and through the 70s, many black property owners, like many whites before them, followed white homeowners into the suburbs well into the 80s, leaving behind real estate that they or their family once owned. In some instances, they were leaving neighborhoods that were going into decline, resulting from predatory lending and redlining policies, among other externally imposed forces. And by the time many of these black families moved to the suburbs, the suburban real estate markets were more developed and their new homes were no longer low-cost purchases. Result? Blacks were often paying top dollar for similar square footage, acreage, location, etc., when compared to similar purchases made by white suburban homeowners. And as a side note, these added costs don't include the hidden costs that Ed Golden discusses later in this episode. So, unlike so many of their white counterparts, these new black suburban homeowners were suddenly no longer investors, but consumers. The real equity and wealth generated in the core city was in effect converted both involuntarily and voluntarily into consumption and transferred to the suburbs. In the interest of transparency, this outmigration made possible the founding of companies like mine, like Integral. We understood from the inception of our company's formation that value exists and remains in the property's location. So proximity to civic infrastructure like museums, sports venues, cultural facilities, historic neighborhoods, parks, etc., provide an opportunity for long-term potential and the ability to leverage that potential. More than a decade ago, a tipping point was reached and urban living once again became desirable and fashionable. The millennial and Generation Z buyers are seeking places and experiences when they make their home purchases. 
They're moving into cities in droves, thereby increasing the perceived value and actual prices of that real estate. And now, people from all walks of life, colors, and cultures, including whites, many of whose grandparents moved to the suburbs in the 60s and 70s, are moving into urban cores in pursuit of that same proximity to museums, sports venues, etc. That made the real estate desirable in the first instance, and now it's desirable once again as we have rediscovered those attributes. After a generation of disinvestment from those urban neighborhoods, the very housing stock left behind represent great investments for those new entrants. Today, after significant value growth, the properties are now in high demand and trading at a premium. Once again, we find black consumers relatedly discovering these neighborhoods that should have been familiar to them and would have been a generation ago. So now with Ed Golden, we will discuss the unequal costs of black home ownership. So Ed, this is always a pleasure. And so today is no different. I'm thrilled that we're here having this conversation. And in the course of this podcast, I really want to encourage our listeners to read the research that you co-authored. We'll post it on the website, uh, the podcast website, of course. Uh, but where else can listeners find your paper um, entitled The Unequal Costs of Black Home Ownership? Uh, yes, you can go to uh, the Golub Center for Financial Policy at mit.edu. So it is very simple, gcfp.mit.edu. Fantastic. Okay, so with that said, and obviously before we get into the detail of your research, I want to share with the audience the last line of your report, uh, which I found intriguing. I was intrigued by exactly how you finished the sentence. While more research is always helpful, we know enough to make substantial improvements now. Meaning no need to procrastinate, no need for analysis paralysis. We can start making a difference right now. So if you were sitting before a congressional committee today, instead of talking with me, <laughs> What are the top three policy changes you think you would advise the committee to adopt immediately? Uh, great question. I think it's uh, very simple. The, the first thing we can do is, I would just argue, to eliminate risk-based pricing in the mortgage industry. And that could be done with a couple of lines of code coming out of the Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the government-sponsored enterprises. The second uh, recommendation is just to make refinancing easier. If you do what uh, is a rate and term refi, so you're not taking cash out, every time you refinance, you actually lower the risk to the system because your payments go down, quite, quite simple. And yet, if for some reason you're unemployed or you have lost income, we re-underwrite the loan and we won't give you that lower uh, mortgage rate. Even though the Fed has cut rates, they're trying to get consumers to have more income. 
we take a segment of the population and don't allow them to refi because we re-underwrite the mortgage. And we should eliminate that. We should make it much easier to uh, refi a mortgage. But Ed, pause a second on that one. Are you saying as a general rule, just making refis easier, period? Or is it depending on where we are in the economy? Are you saying that? Uh, you know, we should make it easier in general. Uh, we could do sort of conditional on depending on where the economy is. Uh, that's a complication. You know, we did it in 2008 with the, as you well know, the HARP program, Home Affordable Refinance Program. But it took over two years to really get it up and running and building the pipes. And I think we should basically engineer it up front uh, with the mortgage. And I think we should keep it simple and just make it for all environments. Uh, there surely could be a twist to the program. Uh, that's why you put the ideas out there and let uh, you know people refine them. But if it were up to me, I just recommend keeping it simple. People often will refer to it sort of as a ratchet mortgage where rates go down, it automatically resets. That would be the simplest way of doing it. So there are alternatives, but right now, we re-underwrite the mortgage. It makes it very difficult for people who have lost income, who are unemployed, uh, to refinance. And as sort of the paper points out, it's not surprising that on average is the black homeowner, and we saw it this last uh, in this crisis where the unemployment rate for black black workers went up to, uh, I think, about 17% they're the ones that are left behind and are less likely to be able to refi. So we can make changes uh, to the system to make it much easier to refinance the mortgage. The third one that I would uh, suggest is just a, a, an expansion of uh, down payment assistance. We should have a national policy, I think for every, every first time home buyer, should have uh, access to down payment assistance. It can be done through, you know, baby bonds. So you get you get the account when you're born, and when, and you use it for your first home at you know at age 32. It can be done through tax credits. But home ownership is important. It's the way we build wealth in communities, and uh, it is would be a fairly low cost uh, program to give you know, everyone the, uh, that down payment and make sure they have sufficient reserves to pay for you know, small repairs. Again, you know, details matter. Obviously, I would, you know, I would you know, base it on an income test. We're not giving it to everyone, but on some sort of sliding scale, if you make median income, you get the full amount. If you make twice median income, you get you know, less than the full amount. We can easily uh, figure out those details. Congress does that all the time. But I would do a, you know, a fairly extensive down payment assistance program. We have unequal wealth. Most down payments come from parents and grandparents and family members. And for many, many reasons, uh, wealth is unequally distributed. The need for a down payment perpetuates that inequality across generations. And I would do a very extensive uh, down payment assistance program. So on that last point, as you were talking, it made me think about, does that close the gap? If we're making it available to everybody, are we actually closing the gap? But, but to your point, um, it sort of 
subtly tied in there that the people that are unable to access it will now be able to access it and therefore that helps to close the gap. I assume that's the message embedded in that. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, you're, as you know, you're not going to completely close the gap right. uh, through any one program in housing finance, but I often talk about moving the needle. So, you know, so a reporter the other day asked me, what did I think about Bank X's program of committing, you know, this many billions of dollars? And I just sort of ran the numbers and it sort of was going to make a very small difference. You know, you never want to criticize someone who's moving in the right direction. <laughs> but it really needs concerted societal efforts to, uh, to close what we've created over hundreds of years. But I think the three that I you know, suggested, eliminate risk-based pricing, make refis easier, and do down, uh, universal or you know, universal down payment assistance will go a long way. It will, it will at least move the needle. Uh, there's a 30% home ownership gap between black families and white families, roughly you know, 42 versus 72%. Uh, you know, might this close it in half? I'm optimistic that it, we would have at least a half full glass if we implemented all three. Fantastic. Okay, so a lot of food for thought there. And of course, your report has garnered a lot of media attention. But as we can understand, the media is not always able to fully unpack the conclusions or the numbers, actually. So, for instance, I read one report that said, your co-authors and you included, black homeowners pay more in mortgage interest, mortgage insurance, and property taxes than other homeowners. The news reports don't go into much detail about why or how this is the case. Can you just take a moment for me and explain why black homeowners are paying more in those three areas, mortgage interest, mortgage insurance, and property taxes? Yeah, let me take the first two because they're sort of uh, related, which is uh, the mortgage insurance and the mortgage rate. Um, in many ways, we've sort of bifurcated how we price for the risk in the mortgage. Sometimes we do it through a mortgage insurance premium. So if you put little down on your mortgage, less than 20%, you need to pay mortgage insurance. Similarly, FHA, there's a mortgage insurance premium. It's not wrapped into the mortgage rate the way the guarantee fee is uh, that what Freddie and Fannie ch uh, charge. So th those are both, uh, both the mortgage insurance premiums and the mortgage rate are basically because we risk-based price on two characteristics in the mortgage market today. That is down payment, which is sort of like loan to value. If the value of the house is 200000 and you take out a $200,000 loan, as you can with, for example, with VA, that's 100% uh, LTV or loan to value. Uh, if you put 20% down, if you, you know, write the check that you perhaps just got from your parents for the $40,000, then that's an 80 LTV mortgage and you don't have to pay mortgage insurance. And it's that risk-based pricing along the down payment. And then the other one is the credit score. Uh, if you're a 750 credit score, you pay much less than if you're a 680 credit score. And so those two attributes are the risk-based pricing, and that, that really accounts for approximately half of why black families pay more, because for many societal reasons, they have less wealth, 
and they have lower credit scores because they're more likely to have faced unemployment. But if we eliminated it and did just flat pricing, we would solve much of the problem. Uh, the other aspect we talked about was people uh, are stuck at higher rates because when, the, when they want to go to refi, they find it difficult because we re-underwrite the mortgage, that we have to verify their debt-to-income ratio and their employment. And that is an impediment, even though, as I said before, it lowers the overall risk to society to re-underwrite the mortgage. Uh, and the original investor would prefer it because they still have that risk. Uh, we basically block the ability to refi. So those are the in the mortgage market that those are the two mechanisms that we point to in the paper as keeping the rates and premiums much higher for black families. Uh, the insurance one, when we cite the literature, is actually not our work. Uh, so I'm not the expert on property taxes and assessments. Uh, but there is very good literature out there, and we chose to include it because we were talking about the cost of home ownership. And so property taxes are, are along with your mortgage payments are, you know, part of what you make on a monthly basis. So we chose to include that component also. It was almost $400 a year. And that was research that showed that for an equal house, equal size, equal attributes, black families are paying roughly 10% more on property taxes because their assessments are higher. And I can only sort of speculate, there's no real you know, discussion of exactly why their assessments are higher, but they're probably less likely to get to appeal. They're less likely to get favorable results in appealing the assessment level. So in general, their assessment levels are 10% higher for equal houses, and that adds significantly over the, the lifetime of owning that house to the cost. So those are sort of the you know, three factors that go into why you're seeing black families paying more. And again, I, I want to go back. It really mounts up over, you know, between when you buy that first house at age 35 and you go to retire at 65, it's over $60,000 of uh, liquid savings that could be built up if you didn't have to make those higher payments. So we're not talking about small amounts here. I, I guess quantification is critical. And, and you, when you put it in those kind of terms and people can understand the magnitude of the impact just for the passage of time, uh, it makes a difference. So uh, you mentioned the credit score and you used the number in there. But the standard credit scoring system, or FICO, is a mystery, obviously, for most people. Um, and our mortgage system relies heavily on it when measuring risk. And so is risk-based lending necessary to ensure a profitable mortgage industry? Um, and, or are there other more equitable methods for the industry to use that could be used and the system still be a healthy system? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, as I, you know, when I joined the uh, industry many years ago now, uh, we didn't see risk-based pricing and the industry did quite well uh, without it. It had other problems that uh, often, you know, has occurred, savings and loan, bad investments, interest rate risk, but it wasn't the fact that there was flat pricing in mortgages. So it's worked in the past. And, you know, I'd point out that there are a lot of similar insurance type markets where we do not allow risk-based pricing. 
we as a society are having this discussion over pre-existing conditions. And people with pre-existing conditions clearly are higher risk, spend more on medical care. But we have chosen as a society to say, no, you know, we're not, you cannot uh, price or exclude based on pre-existing conditions. And we basically impose flat pricing. Markets will tend left on their own device for a variety of reasons will want to risk-based price. It does take usually government actions to eliminate it. But I will point out that the mortgage market already has the government involvement throughout it, whether it's Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, whether it's FHA, VA. It is basically the, the, the rules of the game are controlled by government policy. So similar to healthcare, where we said we don't want risk-based pricing for pre-existing conditions, we could easily enforce it in the mortgage market. What you worry about, if I go back to, uh, if you let me for a moment, go back to my textbook uh, and classroom, what you always worry about when you suppress risk-based pricing is the new entrant coming in and just taking the very good stuff and then leaving with their profits before anyone can respond, sort of this sort of hit and run entry of uh, I'll go in, I'll set up a company tomorrow and maybe the two of us can go into business together and we'll just do the 850 FICO 30% down mortgage and then, you know, make money for a year and then maybe leave when the other companies respond. You cannot build, as you know, you cannot build a mortgage company in a way that's sort of that hit and run uh, entry. There's enough establishment. It takes a, a while. So it, it is really only theoretical that you can say you can, you, that you could not enforce pooled pricing. It would be very simple. And I go back, we had, we, we did that for many, for many years, decades, if not much longer, we had flat pricing in the mortgage market. So it's very doable. Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae would be still very profitable. FHA actually does flat pricing now is a successful program. And I think the originators and mortgage bankers might even prefer a system that's simpler where they don't have to do all the assessments and charge differentially. Uh, they would do quite well within that system. So it is very doable to have a, a flat pricing system. So Ed, I wanna sort of end our discussion with, with a quote that was attributed to you by CNN. I don't know if it really is yours, but I'll tell you. Uh, the quote was, had you saying something like, while mortgage costs are determined by markets to some extent, there's a great deal of public policy that influences these rates, especially as it impacts people of color. We can and should address these issues at a policy level and start now to eliminate the large wealth gap between black and white homeowners that we created in part through our current mortgage system. And you've really been saying that and explaining that over the time of this um, our conversation. The obvious question, which you've already sort of spoken to, what are the policy changes Congress needs to adopt? And I've already asked you that question, so I'll ask you a different but related question. You've worked in government, you've worked in the academy, and you've worked in the private sector. You've clearly impacted public policy over many, many years and have made a significant positive uh, contribution in the way of reforms to the housing finance system over that career. 
you've already discussed some of what uh, needs to be done. So I'd like you to get, get to your opinion. That's where, where I really want to go. Less as an economist and more as an observer and participant of the policy and legislative processes. So here, here's my two-part question. Something you said in your CNN interview caught my attention. You said there's a great deal of public policy that influences these mortgage rates, especially as it impacts people of color. So let me first ask, your, in your research, you describe how policies impact whites differently than non-whites. Is there any legitimate discrepancy over the findings of the research, that is your research and the research of others? So that's part one, and maybe I'll hold off and then ask you part two later. You know, um, and I'm gonna do, you know, take that question and run with it a little bit. Um, because it's, you know, very much, you know, we talked about Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae being created by the government and chartered. And in many ways, it's always a question of who's in the room when decisions get made and what their life experience has been. And you know, the people who are in the room at the time that these decisions are made are people who like to refinance their mortgage. You know, the discussion over the water cooler was what rate did you get? And they have a very easy time of, you know, refinancing a mortgage. And we don't risk-based price on the prepayment side of it because that's their life experience and they're sort of used to getting very easy refis because it's easy for them. They have good jobs, lots of wealth and the like. On the other hand, they've never been in a situation where they're behind on their mortgage. They don't even have families or relative members or relatives who have been behind on the mortgage. And they sort of think that there's a character flaw um, I'll attribute this also to our uh, friend and colleague, Vanessa Perry at George Washington, where we make a moral judgment that somehow defaulting must mean something is bad about you. Or even if your credit score is 680, which by the way is pretty much an average credit score, I've been in the rooms where people will think of that as a bad credit score and they almost say bad people. They won't quite go there. But it's not the fact that life happens to folks and they haven't lived in their, you know, in the environment when you have to worry about which bill to pay. And so we make these decisions that sort of are comfortable for us. I don't want to attribute any, you know, uh, you know malice to these decisions. But we constantly make decisions that seem to have helped on average, you know, the, the wealthy families and disadvantage the ones who are living paycheck to paycheck. Now, I'm going to, again, switch here. On average, and it's not exclusive, as you, you know, well know, but on average, that disadvantage is black families, you know, if you take the entire population. And, you know, because of a lot of uh, systemic racism and issues that have been with this country since its founding. And so it is the fact that, you know, no one has stepped back and said, how did we get here? How did we get to these decisions and this outcome? And what this paper, I think, has done, which other papers haven't, is we, we start with the whole differential and we don't try to make excuses for it. We try just to say, here's where we are and here's how we think we can unravel it. And we want other people to join the conversation and say, 
well, yes, have you thought of these other two solutions also? But uh, if we don't have that conversation, if we just continue to let the same people make the decisions, uh, I think we're going to be stuck with the system that we have and we won't make fundamental changes. So it's sort of a, a call to rethink the system, uh, whether it's when we talk about reforming Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, whether it's talking about you know, the size of the FHA and VA programs. These are all government programs, to go back to your question and your observation. And we can make different choices, and I hope going forward we will. So, Ed, with that, I think you may have given me a preview into the answer sort of embedded in that first part, an answer to my second part, which was, so you know that, I know that, a lot of people know about the inequity in the system. And if we really want to facilitate different outcomes, and I believe at a gut level, most of us do, what do you attribute to, what, what, what do you think are the reasons why the system stays in place, the policies stay in place exactly the way they are, year after year, decade after decade, without really making an improvement? Uh, at one level, the truthful answer is I don't know. Um, it's, um, yeah, I, I, I struggle, and you've struggled, and a lot of people have struggled with uh, this issue because I do think uh, deep down we have you know a lot of good people wanting to do the right thing, and yet you know we we come out with the wrong answer. I'll just put it that way. And I'm going, you know, some of it is the economics profession, uh, I think, deserves some of the blame. Uh, we have taught that somehow risk-based pricing and getting, you know, everyone to pay exactly their cost is a very individualistic and not community-based solution. And we've sort of gone down too far down the road of that we don't, think of things as a society anymore. And we just take it for granted that if, you know, you have a lower FICO, of course you should pay more for the mortgage. And I think we need to step back and, you know, push back on that assumption. And it's, I, it's that core assumption that says, you know, each, uh, each, you know, you know, each boat on its own bottom. I'm, I'm mixing metaphors uh, here. But then we're all, uh, you know, we're all on our own little uh, boat and no one's looking at the ocean and seeing that we're all in this together and that it's a stronger system. If we don't try to distinguish ourselves and we say, you know, we're, we're all in the society together, home ownership's important for all of us for a variety of reasons, wealth building, community building, schools and the like. And I, I don't know how to break that. You know, I'm hoping that we're at an inflection point. Uh, we've seen inflection points in our country and in other countries, quite frankly, going back in history, where people look at, you know, things differently and say to our, you know, each other, now, why do we have a king? Uh, can't we organize ourselves differently? And, you know, I'm going back to 1848. And, you know, we, we got rid of a lot of uh, things. The ancient regime, you know, fell very quickly. I'm hoping we're at one of those break points where the ancient regime breaks and that we, you know, try to come up with answers that work better for society. These are not radical ideas. Uh, they can work. They've worked in the past. I just hope we make, you know, fundamental changes going forward. 
Well, um, to that, on that point and on that note, we can always hope, and I think I agree with you, it feels like we're at an inflection point that may be different from a lot of the other inflection points we've had in the past. And so I think there's a greater awareness. Ed, absolutely thrilled that you had a chance to, for us to have this conversation and contribute to this uh, narrative. I think we, we need to be engaged in more of this, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to share with me and the listeners um, that your very important perspective and message that we all need to be hearing and digesting. Maybe we will see change coming faster than before. So thank you very, very, very much for Thank this. all of you. I uh, hope to do it in person. Uh, it, it, Zoom uh, has its limits. I would love to uh, you know, have a chance to continue the discussion in person at some point. Fantastic. Thank you, Ed. Create the Village is produced by Rick White. Directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group 2020.